Hello everyone and welcome to our first ever podcast from the DAV where we are going to go over some of the previous rounds, some of the previous topics and we're going to ask some of the DAV's expert senior adjudicators on a topic of their choosing. Should be lots of fun. So, I am Alexander Gregory. I'm the current publications and media officer at the Debaters Association of Victoria. In front of me, I have the ever-beautiful, ever-humorous Isabella Cruzes. <laughs> Izzy, would you like to introduce yourself? All right. I am the junior programs and public speaking administrator in the DAV office. I've been adjudicating the school's comp since 2013. Um, debating is basically my whole life now. And finally, we have the ever-impressive and ever-knowledgeable Mitchell Dye. Alexander, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I am the Vice President, Adjudication and Training. Uh, I've been involved in the DAV since I started debating back in school, 2005 it was, and I became an adjudicator in 2009, so I think I'm the oldest and most experienced here, which is both a good and a bad thing. Hello everyone, I'm Aria. I've been part of the DAV for quite a few years. I have experience as an adjudicator, a regional coordinator, and now as part of the exec and the member services officer. So I look after all you guys. Aria throws the parties. I do. That's my official job description. Year, year 12 debaters become an adjudicator next year. It's really rewarding. I can highly recommend it. <laughs> So getting right into it, we've just finished rounds two and rounds three. Obviously, I'm not sure how many students know this, but the rounds don't all happen in great synchronity. They're always a little bit out of kilter with each other. So I think, you know, round two will be fresh in the minds of some of our debaters, but for others, it might be a long time ago. But, you know, casting your minds back a bit, we've got a few interesting topics that were had. Do you want to start at A grade or D grade or work your way up? Well, let's grade? start at A grade. Do you start think? at A grade? Mm. A grade topic for round two is that we should criminally prosecute companies that use sweatshops. Well, I love this sort of topic. Debates about sweatshops are usually pretty good in my experience because I'm always a fan of economics. I think the challenge with this topic, from my point of view, having adjudicated it a couple of times and also helping a couple of teams to prepare for it, is uh, there's two moving parts, obviously the criminal prosecution element and the sweatshops element. So I think the teams that tended to do well tried to focus on both of those elements and not just get blindsided by one or two. Yeah, absolutely. I found that affirmative teams who set up models for this debate where they were specifically prosecuting CEOs or specific members of companies often struggled to actually explain why they were targeting that person or why they felt that criminally prosecuting that company was going to be the thing that made the change. I think that there was often a lot of focus on sweatshops are bad, sweatshops are bad, but I think that teams sort of struggled a little bit with that second part of the topic, as Mitchell said. And the other thing I will mention is an adjudicator told me an example of a debate they saw where the negative side fell into a bit of a trap, went what I call very soft, and they ran this counter model of saying that we're going to fine companies and finding is not criminal prosecution. Uh, because when you drive on the roads, that's not prosecution. So they're essentially running exactly the same arguments as the affirmative side, which is always a trap. And I've seen a few debates like that so far this year where there hasn't been enough distance between the affirmative side and the negative side. So I suppose a reminder for negative sides out there to make sure that you put enough distance between yourself and the affirmative side so you have enough ground and enough stuff to argue. I'm going to say this, though. I This is the first... A grade topic I've seen that's actually I've seen a large take of counter models in the negative team. Normally negative teams don't present counter models. This time I saw quite a few of them. Some of them were, I think, decent. Some of them were perhaps in need of a little bit of help or 
driving on point somewhere. But yes, you can't let the model run the day. Yeah. Let's all just remember that yes, the model is, is a very small model, part yes. of uh, a team's overall case. Mm. Um, so a lot of people say, oh, but we had this model or we had that model. Mm. Uh, a model's only good if you know how to use it and if the you don't get too bogged down. model's only good if you can effectively debate it, yes. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I think that the negative sides struggled a little bit. I think that the reason that we had a lot of counter models in this is because negative sides didn't want to fall into the trap of trying to defend sweatshops as being mm, a brilliant that, yes. institution. <laughs> yeah. And I, I see think that, that a lot with topics. There's a lot of times where the where from the outside, if you just have a five second view of this topic, it looks very one sided because at a first glance, it's like, oh, the topic wants us to advocate for sweatshops, and of course, that's not certainly the only way you can approach this there topic. was an instance there's certainly cases where i think and this is a big trap for also um any sort of uh, gender based topics as well there's this mm-hmm. thing where we don't want to see as the negative team we don't want to seem like we're advocating for what is something which is very obviously morally incorrect mm-hmm. on some level in one of the regions that i was adjudicating at for this topic one of the teams didn't show up and i think yeah it was the uh the negative side, and so I had to debate the negative side, all three speakers against <laughs> the affirmative side. So I decided to just talk about the benefits of sweatshops and not necessarily say that there weren't problems with it, but tried to balance it out and say that sweatshops do more good than harm. And I think that sort of blindsided the affirmative side a little bit, and I tried to put the pressure on them to explain what they were going to replace sweatshops with. So that's, I suppose, also a reminder to affirmative sides to try and anticipate the different angles that your opponents might take and to try and look at how you might prepare a case on that basis and what you might do if the team surprises you, which hopefully I did because that was a very good workshop. Mm, I think absolutely. I think it's really important that um, teams remember that the topics that that the DAV sets are never biased to one side or the Mm. other. And if you're looking at that topic and trying to find an angle and you think, no, it's impossible, it's too biased, then you may need to think about the nuance that is in each side of the topic. The fact that sweatshops aren't entirely evil, they also aren't brilliant, that's why there are two sides to this topic. And that actually feeds in very nicely to the second topic, the B-grade one, which is about citizens encrypted yes. messages, because I was helping a couple of teams prepare for that. They were both on the negative side, and uh, they didn't really see the arguments at first and thought that it was weighted towards one side, but as Izzy has just said, there's a very rigorous topic selection process that we go to that makes sure that the topics are fair and balanced. So for those of you who aren't in B-grade, the topic for round two was that the government should have access to private citizens encrypted messages which is obviously i think it's a hot topic politically at the moment as well as yeah in our debating tournament did you see many b-grade debates uh not a great deal i actually spent probably more time helping sides prepare for this topic but i do think one thing to be aware of is that obviously encrypted messages is quite a technical term i had teams that i was supporting that didn't fully understand what message encryption was so we had to do a bit of message encryption 101 Mm, this is an important moment just quickly for me to plug the resource guides on the (laughs) tav website i tried several times to write this resource guide but i also found encrypted messages to be a tricky subject so i pawned it off to kim one of our (laughs) other office staff Resource guides can be found in the resources tab of the DAV website. They are there for every prepared topic and also for the C-grade advised topics every year. They provide you with a brief background to the topic, a set of key questions that might help you to brainstorm, and also links to articles that will help you to support your case. And can I just say to teams, don't take the resource guide, copy and paste it into your speech and read it word for word, because I was adjudicating (laughs) one year and uh, a team got up and read out my resource guide that I had personally written they probably didn't know that i'd written it word for word while i was 
was adjudicating it. And it's one of those things, you know, how we've all got a certain way of writing things. When you hear your own style of writing being read back at you, even though I wrote it probably eight months before the debate had happened. So don't do that. But I think the point that I wanted to make with this uh, topic is you've got to work out, I suppose, how technical you want to get and how you want to base it around just first principles. And I think you can get too bogged down sometimes in the technical side and it might be best to just zoom out a bit and just think about first principles. Yeah, and it's it's not just this topic. I've seen it a few times before when we had the topic last year about robots taking over jobs. It was a topic then that we should... Um, I think it was AIs should pay taxes. can't remember the exact wording, but they're topics that we've had. And commonly with these things, we get teams that are bogged down in details. And it, as an adjudicator, it quickly becomes apparent that sometimes the debaters don't know what they're talking about, which is a very bad place to be. And for starters, I mean, you might be able to just read off your notes, but you're not going to be able to rebut it if you don't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And yeah. whenever you get teams going into the really technical detail, I find that while they might be saying all the stuff that's correct if they do manage to get the technical details correct, they're always losing the debate anyway because they're getting too bogged down in what's technically possible rather than the bigger question of the debate, which is what are we asking? Should the government or should the government not have access Hmm. The debate's meant to be about privacy. It's not Hmm. meant to be about what is the government actually capable of technologically doing. And I think it's very important that you remember that all debaters remember the adjudicator is an average reasonable person. That means that they also don't necessarily have all of that minute technical detail. And if you bog your speech down in lots of specifics and those sorts of things, then you can actually lose your adjudicator as well. So you've got to be careful about that. And like Mitchell said, first principles is looking at these basic ideas behind debates, things like freedoms, those sorts of ideas, choice, privacy, etc., the bigger picture arguments that debates are typically geared towards. And I actually remember going and being part of the topic selection committee for this year on this topic of encrypted messages. And there was actually a couple of other topics that we had in mind, which were just that fundamental debate of privacy versus security. And they're all very similar debates. Ultimately, encrypted messages was the path that we went down. I don't remember entirely what the other topics that were proposed were, but I think that's important to remember. It's just being aware that at the end of the day, if you know your first principles, that really helps you for all debates because there's a lot of debates that are very, very similar, even if the wording is slightly different. Moving on to C grade, that we should abolish political parties. Yeah, I have to admit, I don't think I remember actually adjudicating this one. Yeah. You see, I seem to have been lumped into a lot of either A grade <laughs> or possibly some D grade debates, but I haven't really done a lot of C. I also fell into a lot of A and D. Um, I did see this debate once or twice. Did you see it a few times, Alexander? I think I might have in Ballarat. I think that this one can be a little bit tricky as well for C graders because yeah. a lot of people don't know exactly how the political system works. But I also but that comes found... back to what we're saying. It's mm. another technical thing. It's not two difference to the our encrypted Absolutely. messages. But having said that, it's important that when you're looking at a political topic, and this will come into play for the D-grade topic as well, that you have some kind of knowledge of well, what do parties do, what's the benefit of parties, what's the harm of having parties. And the way that you can have a look at that is, firstly, the resource guides, but secondly, asking adults who are around you, your teachers, your parents, etc. They're not all guaranteed going to know what political yeah, parties do. All adults that have, you know, just voted in the federal election we had Yes, we, we hope you, they know yeah, what parties do. Yes, we hope they know what they do. And also, as well as parties, I think for this topic, it's also worth casting a cursory glance over the Wikipedia page for independence as well. Mm, absolutely. 
So I think if you're preparing, and yeah, I didn't see this topic, but to go back to just what I think you should do if you're preparing. To Mitchell's first principles. <laughs> yeah, well, just what what is the point of political parties? What are the pros? What are the cons? Start from there, and that's probably a very good starting point. But I suppose if you're the affirmative side, have a fair idea as to what you'd like to replace political parties with. Um, it's very similar to the round one A grade topic, I think it was, which was about um, having a demarchy where electors... Um, well, there wouldn't be any elections. The members of parliament would be chosen at random. And it was kind of a similar theme, I thought. It's about, you know, is it going to be a bunch of independents oh, yes. working stuff out? How is that going to happen? And uh, what's it going to look like? Mm. So your model is probably important, not to take up the whole debate, but as a guiding principle through all the arguments that you raise. So the degrade topic for round two, that all political parties should have quotas for female candidates. Now, Mitchell... You're not a fan of the quota debates, are you? Well, yeah, I find that they can end up being a bit one-dimensional at times. It becomes, you know, quotas are good because we need more women or whatever in Parliament versus just, oh, but merit. Uh, and it becomes quite circular, I've found. But I have to say this year, I did see this topic quite a fair bit, and I thought it was actually done quite well. With the topic selection, I think we had no quota debates last year, so we decided to have a quota debate again this mm. year. And the degraders that I saw actually really tackled it quite well. There was one debate I saw where the affirmative side put up a very strong case for quotas and spoke about the current situation and how it wasn't working. And unfortunately, it didn't quite carry through and they got uh, overrun by the negative side. But it was still a really good debate. So this one I'm actually quite positive about. Do you think, Mitchell, that we should have a quota for the number of quota debates? <laughs> as long as that number is very low. <laughs> well, I, th I think in terms of numbers, though, I think I agree, agree with you. Certainly of the degrade debates I saw for this topic, they were all, I think, fairly well handled. But there was one minor thing that kept on annoying me, which was that there seemed to be a lot of back and forth between teams about what the actual quota should be. Mm, this is another moment where we, we don't want to get bogged down, down in these detail. specifics. I think round detail. two has just been the problem round for getting bogged down in technicalities. I will say, though, if you would like to set a number for a quota as the affirmative team, make it a big number. Like, make it a difference. If you were just saying, let's have a quarter of 1% women, right, we have already reached that. So make sure that you are making a difference. Make sure that it is significant. And that's what I was saying in the sweatshops one about making sure you've got enough room to move. Uh, the more room that you have between yourself and the opposition, the more stuff you can talk about. But if you're too similar to the opposition, you don't have much to talk about. Your case become shallow and uh you're on a pathway to losing the debate unfortunately what did you think aria did you see this topic i shouldn't see this topic but i do think it's it's just a common bit of a trap not to impinge on later topics of discussion but i think it's just a common trap for people to get bogged down in logistics rather than discussing the actual idea so i think if it is a topic and this stands for really any um topics of discussion that requires technicalities not to get too embedded in the technicalities and rather um keep trying to shift the discussion back to the the original idea behind the topic. And this is what I think I tell teams a lot in adjudications is to focus a lot more on the why. You know, why are we doing it? Why is it a good idea? Rather than the how, which is how we're going to do it. Mm. So you do the how at the start to set up, but then once you've done that, focusing on the why is important. So don't, for example, have your entire first speaker's speech devoted to the how or giving us a big, long history lesson because that ultimately won't really get your team anywhere. Mm, absolutely. I think that the purpose of the how is always to support the why. Yeah. The why why is the important thing? Why do we want quotas? How are we doing? How does our sort of model achieve the why? I think it's always a good idea to maybe think about why perhaps whoever's setting the topic wants you to discuss this particular topic. There's usually some kind of, you know, idea generation behind it that they want to inspire. 
I think the other thing I want to say about this topic is, uh, once again, a similar piece of feedback to the A-grade topic, um, they were similar in this round, um, is that people seemed to miss the second part of the topic. First part of the topic being quotas for women, second part being candidates. Yes, that was totally ignored from a number of debates that I saw. All over the place. Yeah. So people, there I had a, a lot. There's a difference. Had a lot of affirmative teams get up and say we want more women in parliament, so we're going to have quotas. But if your quotas are for political party candidates, you're not actually guaranteeing more women in parliament. You're just guaranteeing more women get to run. And so I think that people needed to really make sure that they were looking at every word of this topic. I think it's important when you are first brainstorming a topic and you are underlining your key words that you then remember why those words are important for the entirety of your debate. When I'm running training with teams, that's what I always say. The first thing you should do when you get a topic is to define it. And the reaction, they don't actually say it to me, but you see it, is that's boring. Let's just get on to looking at the arguments. And that's where problems happen if we don't actually understand what we're debating right down to that last word. And I had affirmative sides that clearly defined what a candidate was. Then the negative side in that debate seemed to just take no notice and went on talking about it's not fair because there'll be too many members of parliament Parliament that are just there because of a quota and that obviously good candidates. So a very good point raised there. Please, whenever you get a topic and start preparing, the definition should be the first thing you do. Moving forward a few weeks to a, a round that is hopefully in somewhat more recent memory, we have our round three. Round three is a secret topic for A grade and B grade, so we are going to completely skip those two because the uh, secret topics are not the same in each region, so we could be here a very long time if we wanted to do every single topic. So starting at the bottom maybe this time and working our way up, uh, round three degrades that we should abolish standardised testing, example NAPLAN. Now if I can launch right into this, I'd like to point out that this is example NAPLAN, not only NAPLAN. I think a few teams could benefit from using other examples Look, here. Look, I'm just going to be incredibly blunt. I wish we had made the topic that we should abolish NAPLAN because that is literally what <laughs> that it is. That is what That's we what got. Yeah. I just thought in this topic there was a lot of moving parts mm. and every single debate that I saw was completely different to the one before. It wasn't the sort of standard debate and uh, there was a lot of really good arguments advanced by both sides. But for me, in this topic, I felt that the responsiveness between the two teams was quite key um, because the affirmative side would start out with, you know, it's stressful, it costs a lot of money, the results aren't very accurate. And the negative side would come back with, well, you know, we need it to work out where to put the money in for the schools. So it really depended on how the teams responded to each other on some of those key issues as to who ultimately won the debate in a number of different regions that I saw this topic in. I have some feedback from the queen of the DAV, Charisma Taylor. <laughs> I asked her before before we came in to record what her thoughts were on some of these topics, and she said that her biggest problem with the NAPLAN debate was that a lot of debaters focused on the most convenient stakeholder for their side. So the affirmative team focused a lot on, well, this is very stressful for students, while the negative team focused more on the test itself. And it's important for both teams to interact. But as well as that, students were getting very bogged down with the idea of their own personal experience with NAPLAN. And I think that that's a bit of a... Uh... Well, it, it's a benefit. It's, it's a blessing and it's also a challenge for you. Compared to some of the previous topics, we've had, you know, sweatshops, we've had technical encrypted messaging, we've had political parties, things that students might not be as aware of. 
And then we come to something like NetPlan. A student is going to inherently know about lab NetPlan. Mm. By the time they're debating it, they've probably already sat a number of NetPlan tests. It's something, it's a blessing. You already know what it is, what mm, it absolutely. does. But at the same time, you can get caught into that trap. It personally affects you. So we sort of forget about the other people that might be affected by this. Absolutely. And I think it's really important that we remember as affirmative teams in this debate that you still need to look at the purpose of standardised testing. Is this achieving its purpose or not? And not just... Oh, yes, but it's expensive. Oh, yes, but it's stressful so, for individual students. Here is a fun story about how much I hated doing NAPLAN. <laughs> so the example is NAPLAN. We've been talking about NAPLAN, but there is more to the topic than NAPLAN. As an RC, I've actually had one of the adjudicators come up to me after and they brought in the Victorian Certificate of Education as an additional example. What a great that example. Could, yeah, that could be an interesting curveball because then their argument was okay, you're going to abolish standardised testing. How are we going to grade people on, you know, which uni do they get into? Probably, I think, be intimidating intimidating to the affirmative team that came up against that team. So I will, I will mention briefly, why did we put NAPLAN in the topic as the example if we wanted students to look at other ideas? And the reason is because NAPLAN is personally relevant to a lot of debaters in degrade. A lot of people had just sat in our plan. This is something that people knew about and were able to refer to as an example. However, that doesn't mean that the topic was only NAPLAN. So it is important that even if you use NAPLAN as your key example, that you are realising there are other forms of standardised testing that are also important and have their own impact, like the VCE, which is hugely important. So making sure that you are still looking outside of the list of examples that we give you in a topic, because other examples exist, are still relevant, oftentimes are more important. Beware of the example, read the topic, just like female candidates, standardised testing. And read the topic without brackets as well. So say, what does it say without brackets? What does it say with brackets? But of course, what it says without brackets is more important because that's the actual topic. Mm -hmm. Full disclosure, Michelle has a personal vendetta against brackets. How about we transition now to a little bit more of a deep dive into one of our scoring categories. Everybody's favourite M, (laughs) manner. That's with two N's in how you are presenting your speech. I have a few pieces of advice to discuss with you guys to give to speakers about how to improve their presentation style. I will say, though, that I think that a lot of people, a lot of debaters, a lot of staff, like teachers, a lot of parents put a lot of emphasis on presentation style and that often students actually find it easier to work on and improve their presentation than to improve their content. And so we actually have often a better quality of presentation than we do of the other two M's. But that doesn't mean that man is not important. It doesn't mean that you can't continue to improve on your presentation. So I have three key tips that I would like to discuss, which I'll give you my quick summary, and then I'll discuss each one. Firstly, don't read. Secondly, don't memorize. Thirdly, write less. So, first of all, don't read. So, we get a lot of, um, particularly younger speakers or people who are new to debating, stand up and just read straight off their palm cards or off a piece of paper with that very occasional sort of look up moment. Um, you can almost tell it's get to the end of the sentence, deep breath in, look at the room. It's a hallmark of, of a, maybe a, a young debater. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Someone who is a little bit more inexperienced, maybe a bit more nervous. And yes. whilst you are, like, as a beginning debater, it's fine to do that. You're not going to get zero points for doing that. No one's going to yell at you for reading 
reading off your paper, you're still getting your point across. What you are missing out on is really engaging with your audience. Your adjudicator isn't sitting there taking a tally of how many times you look up to make that eye contact moment with the audience, but rather they're judging how you are engaging with the audience throughout your speech as a whole. And if you are just reading off a piece of paper and occasionally looking up stiltedly, that's not really adding to your presentation. That's not adding to your engagement with the audience. Well, there's no um, engagement. And it makes you seem super uncomfortable as well. Mm, absolutely. It's, it, it's, it's sort also, of a I think it's badly prepared. Sometimes I think it's cases where there's, it's fairly obvious that students don't know their own speech, you know. There's words that they don't know how to pronounce. They don't even know what sometimes the word yeah, means. They've never said yeah, that loud before. It's th- things like that, and you just go, okay, who wrote your speech? Was it a friend? Was it a parent? Was it a teacher? Copied and pasted for me. Exactly. Oh, but even um, as Arya said, it's just never said the word out loud before. Yeah. You could quite easily yeah. have written that speech, used that word. You've just never said it, and yeah. so you don't really know how it's meant to sound. <laughs> yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, I can use fancy words in my mind. I'll take this moment to just say briefly, you do not need fancy words oh, to no. make a good speech. No. It's, it's going it's to... Don't more likely... use fancy words to make yourself sound photosynthesis. <laughs> yeah, you, absolutely. You don't want to be that person. But that's what it sort of comes across, is it sounds very robotic and very Mm. contrived. I was at a primary school training day not that long ago and I was explaining to the students what level of formality they should have and the teacher who was supervising used a very good analogy which was it's like you're talking to the principal. That's the level of formal you should be. You're not talking to the queen. You're just talking to the school principal, right? That's still a person, but it's a person you should have respect for. You should have some level of formality, but you don't want to be over the top fancy. And you are just talking. You're not, I have repaired and rehearsed, and so I'm going to make a very fancy speech. It's the level that I am talking to someone. So words that are already in your vocabulary. I'd also like to say, for some of the A-grade debaters out there, you're not in a courtroom. Absolutely. There's, there's, a, there's a few... Oh, you tell the yes. kids that do legal study. I, I think it's more, I've been addressed as your honour before, oh, and I've had that. members of the public gallery, I feel. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I love I that. had Madam Adjudicator. Mm. Like, you, you yeah. don't need to be that formal, but I think, you know, you would say, like a greeting to your adjudicator and audience, you don't necessarily need to address the peanut gallery individually. No. Although I have also been to primary school trainings where they did think I was a judge, like an actual judge, like with a wig and a gown. <laughs> so I guess my main tip, I guess, relating to manner would just be maybe present to a sibling that's more likely to be easy to criticise you. Um, they're not going to be afraid to point out when you sound dumb. Just present no, to somebody is... like a friend or a sibling. I think that will easily be like, no, don't, don't do that. Mm. No, that's great. Because often, you know, Sometimes your parents, they don't want to discourage you or your oh, yeah. teachers. You want to stay away wanna... from, you're doing great, honey. Keep going. Yeah. You want real advice. You want yeah. real feedback. Go to someone your own age, someone younger than you. Yeah. A little brother, I think, would be perfect at ripping <laughs> yeah. your so Someone that's going to put, yeah. you to put you back in your place. You want to be nicely torn to shreds. Yes. <laughs> so my second point that I want to talk about is don't memorize. So this is the opposite of don't read. So often when we say don't read, students go, oh, okay, well, then I need to write out my entire fancy speech, learn the whole thing off by heart, and then stand up there with no cards. Now, once again, I mentioned this to Queen of the Dav, Charisma Taylor, and she said, don't tell them to not memorise, just that perhaps it's not the best way. (laughs) So yes, you can memorise and it may have great effect. However, the problem with memorised speech is that if you stumble and get caught up in needing to make sure you say your speech exactly as you memorised it, that causes problems for your audience and your adjudicator in that they all feel like you are 
giving them a rehearsed speech rather than talking to them. Secondly, though, um, it also causes problems for flexibility in that you have your set memorized speech and it's difficult for you to make changes to that to adapt to the other team, difficult for you to make that more responsive and match better with the opposition. So having a memorized speech can be fine, but it has its own level of sort of traps and problems. One thing I think people don't realize somewhat is that the only time they address the other team is in their rebuttals. And this might not necessarily be the case. If you are the, uh, second negative speaker and one of your main talking points has already been you know thoroughly addressed in a rebuttal by the affirmative team earlier you're going to have to be really dynamic and restructuring your speech to make sure it's not saying things that have already been addressed by Mm, the other team absolutely and being able to put into your speech and say look i know the opposition has addressed this point and i'm going to talk about it like i'm going to continue to talk about it mention how it's relevant and i've seen a, a number of debates and i think in my entire adjudication career i've only seen two instances where a speaker gets up with no notes whatsoever. And you usually think when someone does that, this is either going to go very, very well (laughs) or very, very badly. And usually what happens is they sort of forget midway where they're going or they actually completely eliminate or forget a key part of their speech. So I think having notes is important. It's really useful to have notes, even if it's just a rough structure of where you're going, because people, I think, underestimate how easily you can have a mental blank when you get up there and get a bit nervous in front of an audience. They are called cue cards. And they should probably be called prompt cards, and we definitely do not call them speech cards. Why not? Because <laughs> you don't write your speech out on them. Smart. You write your top points. Do I have to explain? That? You do. You do. <laughs> I think the main takeaway from this is that top points are your friend. Don't memorize your speech. Don't you know? Write nothing. Write a dot point. But also, where you have some be, being realistic, I say this a lot as an adjudicator. I'm also. Whenever I see students that might need to be told, probably need to work on how you're prompting yourself with your cue cards. I'm also very careful. I don't say, all right, your next speech has to be dot points because they're going to, they they will follow you. They will put dot points for everything, get halfway Mm. through, lose their train of thought and just crash and burn. (laughs) So So it's like, go at your own speed. That's your target. That's where you want to be at. Mm. Go as fast as you feel comfortable though. Don't change your whole pipeline of giving a debate. If it's going to throw you on end. Yeah, and see, this is my third point, right, which is write less. So that is trying to move away from this fully written speech into writing more dot points. And the advice that I give to um, debaters in terms of how do I transition from a full speech to dot points is to intersperse dot points within your full sentences, right? So always begin every point with a full sentence. Always end every point with a full sentence. Have your dot points in the middle. That way, if you feel like you're getting lost, you can skip to the end with a strong full sentence, and you always have a full sentence introduction to each point, and then you're not going to get confused, or you're, you've got something to fall back on. I think that's really good advice, and uh, from personal experience, I can say that as you transition away from the written word into dot points, it's going to be a very bumpy journey, it's going to be a bit rough, the first few speeches that you give may not be very good, but if you just push through and come out the other side, you'll become a much better speaker for that. So particularly if you're in a younger grade where it's largely prepared topics, use that as an opportunity to practice, and as we already said in this podcast, it may not be the whole speech, but maybe just one or two parts where you are doing 
doing a bit more ad-libbing from dot points and just gradually increase it. And yes, it will be bumpy at first, but it will be very rewarding later. And also I'll point out that this is something that adults tend to struggle with as well. I was at a uh, big conference a few weeks back and the adults that were speaking were largely reading their speeches. And that was a big problem for their audience engagement because whenever you see someone speak publicly, you've always got that DAV adjudicator hat on. So, you know, I was a bit disappointed that they couldn't use a few more dot points, but also even when, say, the President of the United States gets up to speak, and this is all presidents, they still have a teleprompter in front of them. Mm, um, and you see those panes of glass. Yes. Um, they're reading straight off the teleprompter. The, the, the way the glass works, if you don't know, you can see your speech on one side and they're transparent on the other side, so you don't see it in the camera. So, so they have to so read clever. word for word over in the States. Um, the Australian politicians apparently are a bit better at ad-libbing, I've been told. But it's a good skill to have. Have, but be aware that one it may be bumpy when you first start and two adults struggle with it as well so you're not alone i will say briefly before i pass to aria who's been waiting to talk for quite some time <laughs> that australian politicians are definitely better at it and the reason is that a lot of them went through the dav in their youth for example former leader of the opposition <laughs> bill shorten was there. once a member of the victorian schools team so we actually have being a debater in high school can set you up for life to then fall. <laughs> I was just going to say, sort of building off what Mitchell was saying, it's not really an oratory exercise. So I think be prepared to to build on your dynamism in your speech and how well you respond. But um, perhaps what I tell the students that I coach is that if you're going to try something new out, i.e. Trans- transitioning from a whole written speech to just dot points, do it in the first couple rounds where perhaps they're prepared topics um, you know, will set you up for practicing You want to be ready secret. for the yeah, secret for sure. topics. You want to have it down pat before you get secret topics. So. Um, yeah. Also, Izzy, you mentioned um, sort of, you know, having a, a sentence at the start and then a couple dot points and finishing on a sentence. That sounds a lot like one of my favourite pieces of advice for debaters, which is don't be afraid of that acronym TEAL. Do you guys remember mm. from high yeah. school? Or yeah, so, oh, yeah, TEAL, yeah. like whatever it is. We I had all a class that called it Oreo. The basic idea, and I think it's a great one for debaters, like it's not just for essays, start with a contention. You know, it translates really well to debate. Yeah. Start with a written contention of full one. Don't be afraid to write that out in full then. And then have some dot points, Um, you know, your evidence, your explanation of it, why it's relevant, and then link back up to not only your contention but the debate topic i think that's a great way of writing your debate and then obviously you present it in a slightly different manner but it's a good place to start Mm, absolutely i also think that when it comes to writing dot points i personally don't recommend that you write out your speech in full and then convert to dot points because then you're going to be caught struggling to try and recapture what you wrote originally Mm. if you just write the dot points to start with then you what you say will be all there is, right? So you won't be trying to recapture what you wrote. You'll be looking at your dot points and thinking, okay, I'm going to speak on that. Now, before we move to the next topic, I, I did look up some fun manner activities. And there is one, there is one that I would really like to discuss with everyone, which is if you have trouble enunciating speaking clearly, if you find that you're talking too quickly or slurring your words together, as often happens when people get excited, try practicing your speech with a pen in your mouth so horizontal (laughs) put a pen in your mouth and you will be forced to speak more clearly okay (laughs) i I would just like to say maybe 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 we should um put a picture up too the the pen is going horizontal left cheek to right cheek we're not poking it further in than what the lips are true yes holding a pen between your teeth if you're getting ink anywhere near your mouth you're doing it wrong (laughs) 
But yeah, the idea is to force your tongue to move. And I think probably we should have mentioned this at the beginning, but good presentation in debating isn't about how many words can I get out as quickly as possible and still be understood. It's often the calmer, more sort of controlled, slower more confident speakers. Yeah, if you say something persuasive. big, give, give us give a few seconds to make oh, yeah, sure the audience sink sinks in. it in. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and uh, the debaters that I'm awarding the best manner points to are the ones that have a speech that is varying in tone. They pause mm. after every big thing, and they're they're, they're engaging with you. They're you they're demanding. Compelling. Yeah, they're demanding the attention. Mm. And, and but manner is more than just looking up. Oh, yeah, and, and it's more than speaking yeah. fast. You're not trying to cram as many points into It's, it's knowing when to minutes, speak fast. Sure. It's knowing when to speak slow, and it's knowing when to not speak at all. Also, I think if, if, a, if a speaker's suddenly trying to ramp up the speed of their, their talk, I guess, it just shows to me that they haven't planned it out within their team. You really, if you're not able to fit in all your points into your allocated time and you feel like you've got to speed up, you need to be allocating those points to another speaker. Common traps for debaters. My favourite thing. Your favourite thing. Okay, what so, have you got for us? Well, I've, I've got three main ones for now, but boy, do I have more stored up. <laughs> um, I guess the top of the list would be Hitler. Everyone's best friend. Don't do it. Just <laughs> Stay don't. away from Godwin's Law. Yeah. I saw in an A-grade secret topic, which surprised me, so I guess I'd rather say now, don't bring up Hitler in, in your debate ever at all. And the reasoning behind this is, obviously, um, what happened in World War II was so atrocious that there is no reasonable rebuttal or comeback to that point, if you will, that can be... I guess reasonably so I would just advise I think it's lazy debating and I'm sure most adjudicators would agree with it and a lot of people as soon as they hear um, I guess Hitler they just tend to turn off so that applies for Stalin Mussolini <laughs> the same category oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> what was your second tip Aria moving on to my second tip which we did briefly touch on earlier which is don't get bogged down in logistics um, I think we were talking about it earlier when we were chatting about quotas but just if your model is taking, you know, more than a minute to explain, or if you can't, if you can't explain it in like two or three dot points, it's probably a sign that you need to cut it down or you need to simplify it. Ideally, it should be a really brief model that you're not. It's not too multifaceted. Um, it doesn't involve multiple percentages or concentration gradients. It's just just something that should be simplified. I always say fifteen seconds. I always say that a good model is 15 seconds or less. Obviously, there are going to be some situations where maybe a slightly longer model is better. I also, I will say, I had a very excessive model recently that went for three and a half minutes and involved multiple tiers of a system. It was the whole speech. Um, It was a really intricate, like a beautiful system. And I was very intrigued by the workings of the system. However, almost none of that model was actually relevant. Um, almost none of it was ever referenced again by that team. They didn't say, here's why we put in all the different tiers. You You just thought, let's have tiers. I will say, though, I myself have been guilty of this. When I was a debater in high school, we had the topic that we should not let people build houses in disaster-prone areas. Oh, I remember adjudicating that. That's how old I am. We had tiers. We had different different sort of types of disaster-prone areas, different types of buildings, that sort of thing. Really, it added nothing to the content of the debate. So those really long, complex models, really long, complex logistical discussions, they don't really help. Um, Now, my last point, so we can just move on. Um, Last trap. My last common common trap, trap and this one is a bear trap. Kids don't get out of it ever. And that would be debates that run parallel 
So I think this is a trap with students sticking to their written speech and not having really any interaction with the other team. And I think this occurs when perhaps they have slightly different definitions or clearly they're prepared for just two different debates. They've conceptualised the debate in a different way, which is fine and it's normal. But I almost value perhaps that unscripted interaction between the two teams more than the written speech, just because it really shows me what kind of a debater a student is and how they think on their feet, especially when something that comes out as quality that's been thought up of on the spot. I tend to value it more highly. Yeah, what absolutely. Do you think? Yeah. Look, I mean, debates that don't where teams don't interact with each other are incredibly tricky to adjudicate as well. It's one of our most common complaints from new adjudicators is what do I do when they don't talk to each other because it's our job is to assess how you have argued with one another not which point is actually sort of better or worse if somebody just says apples are the best and the other team says oranges are the best but neither team has discussed the other fruit then it's very hard for us to weigh up which fruit is better oh for sure it's it's not a speech that you're giving it's a discussion or dare I say it, a debate that you're having. (laughs) No, I always say debating is a discussion. It should be a conversation between the two teams. Here is what I think. A structured conversation, but a conversation nonetheless. We do have rules and timing. Here is what I think, and compared to what you think, mine is better. Oh, for sure. You're trying to convince the third party there being the adjudicator or, you know, the audience, that here's why your point of view in this discussion is better. You're not delivering a speech to impress someone. And I think that perhaps is the, the root or what stems, um, you know, where that last trap comes from. No, I, I couldn't agree more when you don't have any interaction between the two sides. The adjudicator has to sort of apply their own tests of logic and that becomes very fraught with danger. And well, I found that a lot. It also varies between adjudicators. If, if they've got to apply their own, you know, logic tests and their own thoughts to it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you've got to remember variable. that it's one of the criteria or it's a criterion. Responsiveness Program. is part of method. You've got to make sure that you are being responsive and you've got to be good at all of the criteria to win a debate. You can't just be good at manner. You can't just be good at matter. You've got to make sure that you're addressing all of the criteria. Mm, I will say very briefly that this does tie into our other one of our other traps, which is that in my debate with the three and a half minute model, the opposition were not able to be responsive to that model because they did not think a three and a half minute model would happen. Mm. To be they, fair, you shouldn't really expect it, but you should be able to the unexpected. Happens, yeah. You need to be able to adapt to that. That's yeah. part of responsiveness is being able to adapt your case. They had a large point that said, "What about this aspect of the model? You haven't explained that." And I was able to, to sort of look at my notes and say, "Well, they did. They explained it in painstaking detail." <laughs> Minutes two to three. Yeah, exactly. Also, if you get really technical, having a long model leads you towards something called a hung case, which is against mm. the rules, which you don't want to do. But yes. I'm not going to say what that is. Go and read the uh, Australia Asia Debating Guide if you're interested. <laughs> On the DAV website in the resources. It's a great book. So um, I'm just here to talk about the process of adjudication because my role is Vice President Adjudication and Training, which means I oversee uh, the training of adjudicators, how adjudications are delivered, and we're trying to make sure that adjudications are delivered in a way that is fairly consistent and as consistent as possible. That said, debating is very exciting because it's not just ticking boxes on a rubric. We don't Um, have goalposts that we're looking to see if a ball goes through. Yeah, that's exactly right. So every single debate is different and therefore adjudicators, first and foremost, when they're assessing a debate, think about which side was most persuasive. 
But that said, we do have a rule book, as I've already mentioned in this podcast. It's called the Australia-Asia Debating Guide. Anyone who's interested in learning about the process of adjudication should absolutely go and read that book. And I've read it myself several times over. It's very well written. I also, even though I have also been adjudicating for several years now, will still go back and relook at the AADG when I have a question or when I'm thinking, you know, I really feel like I'm losing track of you know, what I should be looking for in method or things like that. And I always find that it really helps to solidify and deepen my understanding as an adjudicator. And so as a debater, it should also do that. The point is, go and read it, um, the Australia-Asia Debating Guide, because part of my role is to oversee the complaints process when people don't agree with the result of a debate, and quite often claims are made in the complaints that come through to me that are in direct uh, opposition to what the Australia-Asia Debating Guide says. So we always try and follow the rule book, so make sure that you read that first. Uh, It's a really good starting point. But one thing that can be frustrating at times with adjudication is that a lot of myths tend to circulate around about what adjudicators either are or aren't looking for. And that means that a lot of misinformation gets spread between teams. Like, for example, when I was debating back in the mid-2000s, it would be if you speak for 30 seconds over, you automatically lose a point. Then if you speak for one minute over, you lose three points. And that's just what people said, and you thought that was the case. I think I've heard that too. That's a very specific no the, the uh, one i the one the specific I, model the one i heard and this i didn't hear it from a teacher or anything it was from a fellow student was uh that the adjudicators are not allowed to give margins that are any more or less than one point <laughs> yeah see i've been hearing that a lot this year as well that yeah. oh no i lost by three points what a huge huge margin like i keep telling every debate i'm in the maximum margin is 15 points guys and if you get 15. me if you get me my average margin is I think it's actually about 3.9. That's so specific. I I think mine probably hovers between 2 to 4. So what I would say to people listening to the podcast is if you have any questions, you can send me an email, vpat at dav.com.au, and maybe if Alexander's kind enough to have me back on a future (laughs) podcast, I'd be more than happy to address any questions that have come through from our many listeners. So vpat at dav.com.au. But yeah, one of the things I did want to talk about in this process of adjudication segment was just scoring, because I do get a lot of complaints or questions in relation to scoring. So I thought perhaps if we could address it here, that might allay some of the concerns and misinformation. So first of all, as everyone will hopefully know, there's three criteria that adjudicators are looking at, matter, method, and manner. If you want to know what each criterion includes, it's all in the book, AADG. But it's also important to note, and if you read the section on scoring, that the scoring range that is available to us as adjudicators is quite narrow. For example, every single speaker will score between 70 and 80 in this competition. Well, so in reality, they really only get 71 to 79, of course, because... And even closer. To yes. some adjudicators, it might even be 73 to 77 mm, or 78. Yes. So at the end of the day, it's a very narrow window. And what that means is that the scoring system cannot deal with everything that happened in the debate. So the adjudicator can't have all of their comments reflected by the scoring system. So a common thing I get is uh, this person did X, Y, and Z, whereas this other person did A, B, and C. Why did they both receive a score of 30 for matter? So it's important to remember, one, that the scoring can't reflect everything, but also the adjudicator, we actually tell them that they have to limit their adjudication speeches to 10 minutes. Ideally, it would be shorter than that. And therefore, in their adjudication 
acceptance speeches, they can't reference everything that they saw in the debate. So just because something wasn't referenced either on the score sheet or in the adjudicator's adjudication speech, it doesn't mean that it wasn't taken into consideration. Now adjudicators don't just add up the scores at the end of the debate and give the debate to the team with the highest score. They fundamentally ask themselves first, who was the most persuasive side? And if that's a different team to the one that got more points, they'll actually change the score sheet around um, to have it reflect uh, the team that was most persuasive. Because that's what we say to all adjudicators. You must first of all work out which of the teams is most persuasive. So that was a couple of the things that I really wanted to get across in this process of adjudication. If any of our other wonderful adjudicators want to chime in with any thoughts well, before I, we wrap up. I think up? it's really important that I think you understand the rules you're playing with. If you want to go to your local sports club and play a game of soccer, you can't just jump on the field and kick the ball around and pick it up and carry it with you, yes. can you? Because well, that makes you a dog that's run onto the field. <laughs> <laughs> there are rules that you play soccer with. There are rules we play any sport with. And there's rules just like for debating. And I think it's something People don't really understand the rules. And we try and have as few rules as possible because we want it to be very open. We, we want we, you to enjoy yourself and to learn something. We don't, we don't want, want you to, to get bogged down. Because in persuasion works in many different ways. Yes. But any rules that we do have are either to facilitate persuasion or to make it fair for both teams. Like, for example, timing... We do that to make it fair for both teams. Um, the rules about hung cases is to make it fair for both teams. But go and read the book. It's great. I just wanted to say, I guess, returning to what you were saying about emailing us any questions, <laughs> I think it's a great idea if, if you have any questions or anything you want us to discuss or a specific scenario you want an opinion on. I think we've all got different expertise. Say, you know, some of us, some of us are coaches. We're all adjudicates. Some of us have been coordinators. Um, or senior adjudicators or senior trainers. So I think it's a great idea. Definitely send through anything that you'd like discussed. And if you're a student, if you're a parent, if you're a a teacher, if you're a coach, send something through and we'll try and find a senior adjudicator, find the relevant person at the DAV to answer your query. Send an email through to publications at dav.com.au and I'll see if I can find a senior adjudicator to talk about your query on our next podcast. Love to hear some feedback. All right, so I hope that everyone listening heard something that they can take away with themselves to improve their debating skills. And I look forward to speaking at you at some point in the near future.